Let's just sit uh, and just rest in prayer for a a few more moments. God, I acknowledge that I need you. And that is every day and it's every hour and every moment. There are times when I don't acknowledge my need for you because it's easy to float along or press through or whatever. But God, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, you're the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We, we need you even if we don't know we need you. And so God, I confess my needfulness for you this morning and, and I ask that you would provide um, what I need and what we need as a body to, to hear your voice through the scriptures. God, we can't save ourselves. We needed Jesus. And we can't live life for him apart from him, so we still need him now. But I thank you, um, mighty God, that you are your, your face towards us is kindness and your purposes are for us and, and you love us so deeply that you do meet our need. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, some of you, this is... Um, I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, and for some of you, this is going back a, long, a lot longer than others, and some of you, this is the answer will just be recent memory. But do you remember your high school principal, right? <laughs> Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so? And uh, did you, where I went to school, we had assembly, and the Principal likes to give a little speech. Did everyone else have that experience, or yeah, sort of, sometimes? Um, do you remember anything from those speeches that the principal gave? A little bit, slept a little bit. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Well, that's a bit of a bummer for someone who gets up and talks for a living, you know. Um, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm, think, I'm thinking about. School principals. Well, I had two principals when I was at high school. Uh, Mr. Tig was number one, and because kids are cool, uh, cruel, of course, we called him Mr. Egg. It was so funny, you know, and, and um, humorous. And uh, we had Mr. Davies Collie. And I can remember one thing from each of them, actually. Again, because kids are cruel, and we would kind of make fun of it, right? Uh, Mr. Tig would at the very heart of his message, whenever he spoke, he would always talk about how we're all in the same waka and we're all paddling together. We're paddling together. That was his image for his leadership of the school, was to try and get us all paddling in the same direction. And it's actually quite a good image, isn't it? Um, And uh, Mr. Davies Collie, he had a different phrase and it just sticks out in my mind. As soon as I think about the guy, he would say, attitude is everything. That was what he wanted to impart to us as students. And whether we remember it because he just repeated it or whether it's really sunk in, I don't know. But it's 
stuck with me. I can remember it. Attitude is everything. And I bring that up because we've just begun our series on the book of Philippians. And uh, in case you weren't here last week, we did a bit of an introduction to the book. We looked at how Philippians is sort of arranged with this series of little short essay type things that the Apostle Paul is, is saying. And they all revolve around this one central thing in chapter 2 of Philippians, which is a poem or a hymn. And it says in this, at the beginning of this poem, it says, Have this mind among you, which was in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to explain what Christ Jesus was like. So he was, you could think about the book of Philippians like this, that everything that it's trying to tell us is not just instructions about what we should do, but it's, about, it's instructing us in how to conform our minds to the way that Christ Jesus thinks. And you could think about mind in lots of different ways, um, not just in terms of the thoughts that Jesus has, but actually one translation, the New American Standard Bible, puts it, have this attitude among you which was in Christ Jesus. So one of the questions that I think is going to keep coming up through this series, and that's, this is what I want to focus on today with our particular passage, is what does it mean to have the attitude of Jesus? Well, I want to walk through the passage today. Excuse me, just do a little remedial work there. Um, I want to walk through the first chunk of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and at first blush it kind of looks like a little, just a basic introduction, right? Paul's, you know, saying hello, telling, you know, addressing the people, giving some niceties, adding a little bit of a prayer, uh, but I think we'll find, and I've found in my study of it, that, that it's actually much deeper than just Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Because we actually get a, a glimpse into Paul's mind and Paul's heart, Paul's attitude towards the Philippians. And therefore what he believes the attitude of Jesus is for them. And that therefore he hopes that they will have. So let's walk through it and see what happens Starting in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I just want to note for a minute here, there's a little contrast in the way Paul describes himself and the way he describes his audience. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And the word here for servants, that's a pretty, uh, that's a sanitized translation. We could actually read slaves of Christ Jesus. He's saying, uh, not just I do stuff for Christ, I belong to him completely and utterly. 
Now, the slavery that he's talking about is not the same thing as what our imaginations probably think of. Um, It could include that. Uh, But in the ancient world, slavery actually had quite a range within it. You might have some people who are... uh, had zero status and zero um, sort of wealth, but then you could also have a slave in a in a rich household who was um, quite a powerful person in in terms of what influence they could wield. The key point is Paul is naming himself a slave to Christ, him and Timothy, and that he does not um, he's not the boss. In his life. And he belongs to another. In contrast, Paul names the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And saints is actually, in this ancient mindset, a quite a lofty word. It's a high and set-apart word. It refers to... Uh, people that have been set apart to a, a high purpose. It's the sort of word you would use for someone like a priest. Um, it was a word of honor. In contrast to this slavery that Paul owns for himself. He goes on in verse 3. I thank my God... And all my remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Philippi is a church. Philippi is a place, but he's talking to the church in Philippi. And this was a community begun by Paul. um, And so he's known for its whole kind of life. As a church. And it turns out Paul reckons they've been good partners in the gospel. And this could partly refer to uh, their, their having supported him and helped him in terms of financial aid. And towards the end of the book, you'll get a reference to that that they had actually been very generous and sent a gift to Paul um, because he was in prison when he wrote this letter. Uh, So they've been good partners in the gospel from the first day until now. And Paul is kind of bringing our minds on a journey of this Philippian church. You guys have been doing great. And right up until now, you're doing well. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is one of those super quotable passages, like phrases of scripture, right? It's one of the ones that we can draw on to remind ourselves when we're struggling, when we're feeling like kind of a terrible person or we're not really living the way we should. We can take ownership of this, that what God began in us, he's going to finish. I liked Sophie's choice. I assume she chose the song for the Easter camp thing. Uh, it's I like that song. 
It's called My Testimony. Uh, you can look it up. But it draws upon this passage a couple of times. It says, um, My God will finish what he started. Um, to put it a bit more sort of almost darkly, he says, If I'm not dead, then he's not done. Right? I like that. I like that sentiment that actually um, God's still doing stuff. Verse 7, it is right for me, Paul, to feel this way about you all, because I hold you all in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It always bears remembering when we read this book that Paul is writing from prison. It's sort of easy, one of the dangers with those awesome little quotes is it's easy to to pluck it out and apply it to our life um, and lose something of the punch of it that um, he's sitting in prison. (laughs) He's writing from a place of suffering and uncertainty. And then the sort of last couple of verses of our passage today, we get a look into Paul's heart And he shares what his prayer is. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want to draw your attention to a dynamic in this passage. Twice here and and other times in Philippians, Paul refers to The day of Jesus Christ. So back in verse 3, that that super quotable one, he says, I am confident that he who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And later, here in verse 10, part of his prayer is that on the day of Christ... The Philippians will be found pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. The gospel has a destination in mind. I don't mean that geographically. And the last couple of weeks of our gospel series, we talked around what our future hope is and um, heaven and new heavens and new earth. And so we've got to be sure, and, and the video last week made this clear too, that we're not, when we think about the, the destination or the goal of the gospel, the goal of the Christian life, we're not talking about escape, right? But there is a point in time towards which, as Christians, we're heading. And here, Paul names it the day of Christ. I think that he's referring to the day, and you could say the time, because 
Uh, it might take more than one 24-hour period of time to suss all this out. But the time when Christ returns to earth. The time that ushers in the, the beginnings of, well, the completion of the new heavens and the new earth. The day of Christ at which every one of us will stand before God and face heavy word incoming judgment. Paul's desire is to get us to that day, is for us to arrive at that day in a certain state, pure and blameless, is part of how he puts it here. Now the point I want to get to, or that I'm trying to unfold, is that this destination that we have, this goal, this, this point of the day of Christ Jesus, the Christian life is not about just about walking from A to B. It's not about our, our starting here and getting there and sort of hoping that we don't mess up in the meantime. The purpose, I want to argue of the Christian life is for of the ongoing process of living as a Christian is to become fit and ready for that day. The people who began at point A are going to get to point B and along the way, God is going to make us into people fit for that day, fit for that, that coming kingdom. The big fancy word for this is sanctification. Right? Let's unpack that a little bit. The word sanctity might make sense to you, or um, sanctified. Um, comes from the same sort of root where we get words like sacred, which means holiness. The process of getting from A to B and what God is doing along the way is to make us holy and sanctified in Christ. Now, I was trying to think about an analogy for this. And I've got a couple. Any Lord of the Rings fans? I love Lord of the Rings. So good. Yeah, yeah. So, right. Lord of the Rings involves a long nine and plus hour journey, doesn't it? Right. And I'm sort of thinking more about the books here. So if you're not familiar with those, that's you know, going to be a challenge. But I'll try and do my best. At one level, you could look at the journey they go on as a matter of getting from point A to point B. The hobbits of Tolkien's imagination begin in the Shire. This inciting incident happens, and they have to take this little ring, this precious, up to Mount Doom and destroy it. And that represents a journey, a long journey, a point A to point B. But... 
the story doesn't actually end at that point, does it? Um, and if you know the novels, after the hobbits have achieved their purpose, they actually get they actually go back to their home, to the Shire, right, to this paradise from which they began their journey. And in the novels, um, Frodo and Sam, the hobbits, go back to the Shire, and Sam becomes the mayor of Hobbiton for, for a long time, right? And what I'm trying to articulate here is that the journey that they went on, yes, it had a very important purpose in the, in the, the time frame, but beyond that journey, there was an even bigger purpose. It was that um, they could go back to by analogy, let's say, the new creation. They could go back to the garden and, and live there based on what had gone before. So Sam, who we all know if you, is the real hero of Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, so he is now of such caliber that he can reign as the mayor in Hobbiton. He can live... He's become the sort of person who can live there in this new way. The other analogy that I have in my mind is about a painting. And, and this is a, an image that's been used by lots of other um, thinkers through Christian history about what God did for us in Christ. And you might think about it like this, that the Bible tells us we were made in the image of God, right? Um, we were God's um, masterpiece within creation. And we alone within creation reflect the image and likeness of God. But the story is that sin, into which we've all fallen, has marred that image. And it's Broken it to the extent that we, we no longer looked like what we were supposed to look like. We no longer looked like the image of God. In Christ, in Jesus, God restored the image to humanity by showing us the true human, by showing us and, and taking our fallenness onto himself, God restored the image now, I think the Christian life is a little bit like this, because if you think the image is restored, well, what else is there to do? So I sort of imagine that in Christ, the image is already restored. We do look now in Christ, we look to God at least like the image of God. We do reflect him. But I think this process of sanctification is a little bit like the artist continuing to fill out and bring to life this image. It's God making us look more and more and more like the image that we already looked like. He's adding color and depth and, and, and making it more vivid, making it more obvious 
And elsewhere, Paul writes that on the day of Christ, it's going to be a whole big revelation. Because at the moment, we don't see each other fully according to the Spirit. But on that day, we will be seen for what we really are. All this is the work of God. But in this time, he's given us the right and the joy to participate. I don't want to skip too far ahead because it's a short book and we've taken a long time to get through it. But in chapter 2, Paul is going to say, He's going to tell us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works within us for his good purposes. Our participation in this life with God makes a difference. And when we face Christ in the end. We do face him as judge. And the New Testament is very clear to us that he will judge things done in the body, good and evil. Now that might sound like a fearful thing. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying to you that what you do now determines your salvation or not. Salvation comes by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus and and by naming him Lord. But in that day, we'll face judgment for what we've done. For I would say for how we've participated in the graces that God has been giving throughout our lives. So it matters what we do. It matters eternally how we participate with what God has given us. Going back to verse 10 of this this passage that I've read this morning. Paul says that his hope is we will be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's just linger on that last phrase there. Because something that people get nervous about when you start talking about our participation in this and that it has a consequence is people might be nervous like Mark are you saying that we're going we're gonna to earn something for ourselves um, the purpose of our being made pure and blameless is all to the glory of God here we won't stand before Christ, I don't think, and, and all of a sudden think about how wonderful we are. 
I think we're going to stand before God and we're, we're going to weep. I think we're going, to, we're going to come to Christ Jesus and we're just going to be flooded with thankfulness and joy at how much he has done for us. So the long and the short of my message really is God's ongoing purpose in your life is to sanctify you, is to fill out the detail of the image that he's already restored you to, to make you more and more and more into the image of Christ. So that God willing on that day, we'll stand before him and we will look just like him. Now, there's a challenge in this, which comes back to our attitude. I think very often we, and I own fully for myself, we think in terms of what God can do for us. And that can shape and color almost, depending on how we're doing, can shape and color almost everything about our relationship with God. Now, it's not wrong to want God to do things for us. And we need to always start from the position that says, God has already done everything for us in Christ. Okay, God is for us. That's the good news. Um, but I suggest to you that as you walk along in your Christian life, what can God do for me is not the only and perhaps not the primary question to be asking. An important question to ask is, God, what are you doing in me? At the start of this year, I, I shared my hopes for our preaching year, and I, I, I borrowed from a song, Christ Be Magnified, right? And um, we've sung that a few times, and that phrase, Christ Be Magnified, comes from the end of this chapter. And I tried to articulate it in three ways, that we, we want to become a people where Christ is magnified by us, that we lift him up and we praise him and we declare him, and, and that Christ is magnified through us by what we go out into the world and do and how we act and how we share. But a key part in the middle of those two for me is that I want to become a person, and I, my hope for all of us is that we become people where Christ, Jesus, the Lord of all creation is magnified in us as well. I'll give you an example and then I'm going to call it quits for now. Uh, Mr. Davies Collie, our principal, who told us Mr. Attitude is everything, right? 
his uh, story is that a couple of years before he came to our school, he was in a car accident and he only had one leg. And so his life was very, very difficult. He was in a lot of pain. He had ongoing complications. Uh, His mobility was decreased. And I'm not saying that his attitude was perfect either, right? But he'd learnt. And at 17 or 18, whatever, I was probably too ignorant to know the power of him standing there and telling us that attitude is everything. As far as I remember, he never made a big deal out of his uh, injury publicly. He never kind of tried to um, garner sympathy from it. But he'd learnt that the difference in his life came down to attitude. We don't always get to choose our circumstances. We don't always get to choose or get from God what we want our life to be like. Sometimes things happen to us that should not have happened. Sometimes we make choices that have consequences that we can't do anything about. I put it to you that spiritually, attitude is everything. I'm not talking just about positive thinking. This isn't magic. It's not Oprah. It's not like just sort of think good thoughts and they'll come to you. I'm talking about what is Christ doing in me in this situation? God, I really don't like my job. I really, I really wish that I could just escape this place. I, really, I, don't, like my, I don't like my workmates. I don't like um, what I have to do here. It doesn't give me any fulfillment. I'm not saying that about myself, by the way, because I work here. Um, I love my workmates, all of them. Uh, what if you could shift your attitude about that? What if the question wasn't, God, what can you do for me to get me out of here? What if it was, God, your word says that I should count it all joy when I face trials of various kinds. Because the the testing of my faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness can have its full effect and, and that can lead to me lacking in nothing. God has a purpose in your life. And I think if we change our mindset from that meaning God will do this for me, to God has always got something to do within me, 
I think it can change our perspective on where we are and what we're doing. I think it means that we can receive with joy the challenges of our lives rather than simply hate them and resent them. It would be so easy for someone to suffer and be traumatized by, for instance, a, a car accident and, and to then have a, a debilitating injury that carries on through life. It would be so easy to become resentful, to hate God, to, to be mad about the circumstances. And look, we've got to process that stuff if there is madness and anger and resentment in us. We've got to get it out, not deny it. But we've got to trust that whatever we're, wherever we're at, God is working in us to bring us as his children to the day of Christ Jesus. And that when we get there, having, having walked with him and participated with him, we'll get there and, and be pure and blameless and full of the fruit of righteousness because we've walked with him. Let's pray and then uh, we can finish. Mighty God, I pray that you would help us to receive your goodness and kindness, the joy of your Holy Spirit and of your salvation in all circumstances. that we might live for your glory in all things and that we might grow and deepen in love for you and for one another and that we would not be despondent when challenges come. We would not think it a sign that you're not favoring us, that we would, instead we would rejoice that you are with us and and. The challenges of our lives are an occasion to know you even more. Father, I thank you for everything that you have done in Jesus and by your Spirit. I thank you for everything that you are doing. And I thank you, God, for everything that you have yet to to see out or that we've yet to see Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.